There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? This city, it'll suck your soul out through your heart if you let it. Why do I stay here? Why does anybody stay here? Sure, no place else has turkey and dressing sandwiches like they do here. And there's nothing like the Fenelon Place Elevator Company to make your heart sing. But is even Betty Jane Candies enough to keep me here? No, but I can't leave. God, what has Dubuque, Iowa done to me? Well, nothing, because I've never been there, no matter how many times Mike begs me to take him. Please take me to Dubuque! No! But I can tell you where I have been, right here at Max Mike Movies, in our series, Walk the Dark Street. The series that drinks its bourbon straight from the bottle and explores the dark, gritty world of film noir. This week's entry is a first for this series, a film not adapted from a novel or a short story or even the drunk scrawlings found on a cocktail napkin at a booth where Nora Roberts passed out that one time. <laughs> No, this one is adapted from a graphic novel, which is what adults call comic books, just make them sound less dorky. (laughs) And not just any comic book, but one written by one of the great, if somewhat um, troublesome names in comic book history, Frank Miller. That's right, Mr. Dark Knight Returns himself. Yes, after he took on the Caped Crusader, he tackled the hard-boiled noir genre. Let's see how he did. I'm your host, Max, tormented by my dark past, Levine. <laughs> and over there, finishing off his fourth straight bottle of Yoo-Hoo, is Mike, but I want to see the Field of Dreams movie site loose. Tell us how much you love Dubuque, Mike. I drink my bourbon with a straw. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only way that real men do. Hey, did you say the name of the movie? <laughs> I don't think you uh, did. That's not important. People know it on their soul. It's 2005 Sin City. As in, I ain't gonna play Sin City. Except it isn't, but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. But before we get there, we've got to get here, which is the poll question. Poll question. Last week we asked you, what was your worst movie viewing experience? Was it the movie or the venue or both? Adam Mark says, when I was a boy, my family took me to see The Lion King, the 1994 version, in its original run. A person in another part of the theater died sometime during the movie. (laughs) No. Their family discovered it only when the credits rolled and everyone was standing up and shuffling out. They started shouting for an ambulance. My parents hustled us out. We read about the death in the papers later. Hakuna Matata! <laughs> wow. Um, Boy, we, I think right off we have a winner. I think we just <laughs> stop now, an actual death. I mean, Lion King isn't necessarily my favorite animated Disney, but I never thought it was lethal. <laughs> wow. Um, sorry you have to follow this, Kelly J. Cooper, but she says Harvard Square used to have another small movie theater in addition to the big one that's closed and the Brattle. Oh, that's right. The, the, the Janus. The, 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 the Janus, mm-hmm. that's right. Back in 1998, a friend and I saw Dark City, oh, and you really needed a good sound system to immerse yourself in the amazing soundtrack in order to really crank up the suspension of disbelief to the right heights. The movie was both brilliant and ridiculous. 
Gee, that sums it up pretty well. Oh, well, well. Unfortunately, the sound system in that th- little theater was in no way, shape, or form up to the task, and the whole movie fell flat for me. Oh, dear. Hmm. I felt like I could see the potential of the movie, but not quite experience it. Very aggravating and frustrating. Never saw another film there, and it closed not long after. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I saw actually saw um, Thelma and Louise at the Janus, and the only thing that was it, yeah, the only thing that was interesting is when the lights came up, I realized, oh, I'm the only guy here. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Forth, they behind the harbor. Well, Charles, have, ha, try to have fewer consonants in your name, would you? Charles Forsyth says, The Phantom Menace. Really, we could stop there. But <laughs> remember, there were people waiting in line for the first showing? Mm. Yeah, hard to believe. Nick Hoffman, who we will hear from later, had some friends with a reserved spot, so I flew across the country. Oh, Charles! <laughs> To stand in line at a theater in Century City in Los Angeles. It was exciting. Being in L.A., there were people lined up in costume, and I mean grade-A costume. One fan was dressed up as Darth Maul, including picture-perfect makeup of his red and black skin pattern. Oh, wow. wow. And then we saw the movie. At dinner afterwards, see, that's it, just right? (laughs) At dinner afterwards, Nick made a valiant effort to discuss the movie, but it fell flat because we were all in stunned silence. In the years since, I've come to appreciate what Lucas was trying to do, kill his own creation, but what he actually did was a sad mess. Mm -hmm. He should have turned it over to a different director, which worked out really well with Empire Strikes Back, or maybe he should have given the director's seat to Tommy Wiseau, so the film would have been funny bad instead of cringe bad. I would have paid so much to see that. Uh, I will defer to the iconic Plinkett reviews, you can look that up online, for a knowledgeable breakdown of why the movie sucked. Off topic, you recently asked about favorite noir films and favorite Bruce Willis movies, and I don't think anyone mentioned Sin City. Uh, Why, I have the most extraordinary (laughs) coincidence to report. (laughs) George Saulnier says, unquestionably demon lover. A multinational production with Gina Gershon, Chloe Zavigny, and a bunch of French people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) May we. I I love a bunch of French people. (laughs) It's a long, slow, gratuitously sexual, and ultimately incredibly stupid anti-internet porn morality tale in the vein of Requiem for a Dream, but without the stylish filmmaking. Oh. Now I kind of want to see this. Really? I saw it in the wee hours of a 24-hour science fiction marathon. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, it's science fiction. Why Why was even part of such a festival is a mystery to this day. Oh. I've rarely been in a theater that hated a movie more. It seemed <laughs> to go on for hours with scenes and subplots never quite gelling into a coherent whole. Yeah, now I'm Ooh. really curious. Yeah, I've been to that science fiction film marathon, so have you, and the most hated film yeah. I remember, and maybe it was the, maybe it was a schlock around the clock, was um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Boy, did people hate oh, for- that. <laughs> I didn't see that one. For me, I think it was uh, The Apple. Uh, You saw that that in the theater? I saw that at the Science Fiction Marathon. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) If you're really bad listeners, we might do a show about it. No, we won't. (laughs) If we ever do one of those, you can't make me's again. (laughs) Steven Strickland just writes, Jack and Jill with Sandler. Yeah. 
you, well, you're done. You don't have to say anything else. You had me at Sandler. <laughs> Tyler Stewart says, for gross venues, it's hard to beat the porn theaters in Boston's combat zone in the 80s. And um, how did you know, Tyler? <laughs> Although, I wouldn't I be him. hard to guess. No. I, but. It's, I, I doubt the, the Pussycat Theater never really looked like a high-class jerk. Oh, I always was interested in the Naked Eye Theater. Mm. Oh. Mm. The only movie that I felt the urge to walk out from was Liquid Sky. Oh. I never saw that. About 60% of the way through, during the Rhythm Box song, I decided to walk out if it got any worse. And it didn't quite get that much worse. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, Val Coons, who? who is queuing footsteps everywhere, says, I don't remember the movie. Maybe you do. Mike, why would she think you would? Damn divine. Uh, but... But when I was an early teenager, I lost my glasses and crawled around on the floor <laughs> saying, My glasses, I can't see anything without my glasses, Velma. Um, <laughs> I lost my glasses and had to sit in the front row of the theater to see the movie. Um. I do not recommend that. Had to do, do the same at a private screening at MGM of the first restoration of Gone with the Wind. Oh, God, front row for almost four hours? My neck was stiff for days. Then there was the time I went to a theater that was to see the live Metropolitan Opera simulcast. I apparently sat in a seat preferred by a trio of old ladies. No seat assignments. I got there well before they did, and they kicked my seat the whole time. Nice. Wow. That's well, a trio of Well, they tapping your feet along with the opera. <laughs> oh, yeah. Regan McStravick says, as someone who works in film and who is, is occasionally asked to help adjudicate submissions to various film festivals or invited to screenings of films made by friends, my list of films that are so bad they are unwatchable is pretty long. Oops. Yeah. But there is nothing worse than going to a premiere of a film that I worked on thinking, wow, I really hope nobody I know ever sees this film. Oh, dear. And if they do, I hope they don't say, stay long enough to see my name in the credits. Oh, boy. Especially when there are, as is inevitably the case, several people in attendance who also worked on the film and are incapable of seeing just how bad the final product was. Or when I know a film had a good script, or at least a good concept, and we just didn't pull it off. I'm not very good about lying about my thoughts in situations like this, so I try to just sneak out without having to talk to anyone after. Well, ouch. Nobody well, ever reads the credits, so doesn't that make you feel better, Regan? <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Carl says I, I hope this is a typo but 15 this is the title 15 minutes of cow's blood on white leader at the Ann Arbor Independent Film Festival back in the late 1990s the title says it all literally Pearl Harbor is a close second <laughs> wow <laughs> Wow! I would have seen them in reverse order. That way there might have been some yeah. relevance. But mm. yeah. Dave, Dave tells us, I fall asleep every time I watch either The Stuntman or Apocalypse Now. How do you huh? sleep through that? <laughs> Never made it through either movie. Does that count? Sure. sure. Otherwise, I suppose there was the time in Hiroshima. Uh-oh. You weren't there in August. Uh, anyway, <laughs> when I decided to save money by buying an advance ticket to Never Say Never Again. 
It was double featured with Great American Violence, and which I've never heard me of. Either. And the nice young lady sold me a ticket to the theater where the movie was playing first. It was an hour and 20 minutes of real scenes of people being beaten and or killed. No plot. Dave, I think you saw a snuff film. Faces of Death. Yeah, the climax, I presume from the previews and movie poster, being a guy chained to two Jeeps that drove in opposite directions. He broke at the wrists, as I recall. Oh, Dave, what happened to you? Why did you stay? <laughs> I quickly figured out that the film was disgusting, and I sat in the lobby till it ended. Oh, but at that point, had no ability to enjoy the Bond film, well, which was not a particularly good one in the first place. That is, That wasn't just the situation. Never Say Never Again wasn't very good. But, oh, God, Dave, I'm so sorry. This may be, this comes close to the having someone die in the theater. You get People to watch were actually dying die. on screen. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, Nick Hoffman writes, I have never actually walked out of a movie, but I came closest watching a Jackie Chan film oh. back in 94. It was so god-awful. Even the stunts couldn't save it. So bad, I don't recall the name. Wow. Wow, I don't know what that could have been usually his movies are really good the 94 though that's getting kind of, it's not late, I, late that might have been the one they did here was it uh, rumble in the bronx or something mm, don't know yeah and seth jacobs simply says the room <laughs> miserably written acted and directed so bad a certain grandeur creeps into it <laughs> well that's a positive way of saying it seth see our entire episode on the room yeah cheese boy himself ned says, oh gosh, I saw Shin Kamen Rider earlier this year with some friends and had the worst neighbor. He not only walked in almost half an hour late, he alternated falling asleep, talking on his phone, looking at his phone with the brightness turned all the way up, and singing along at full blast with Kamen Rider's theme whenever it popped up in the score. He also spilled popcorn everywhere and took off his shoes. I guess that's what me and my friend get for buying ourselves pre-movie cannolis and not grabbing any for our partners. Yikes. And, of course, from the snowy wastes of the north, we have Vince of the Mountain. <laughs> he lives in Montreal. <laughs> I bet there are mountains nearby or in the city or in his house. I don't know. Be I haven't been to Montreal in a long time. It's Canada. Nobody knows. <laughs> They're not even a real country anyway. Um, <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Vince. I would have to say any movie seen in an airplane is the worst experience. Mm. Oh, yeah. And you can't walk out. The noise, <laughs> interruption, the poor sound and video quality, and the films are often edited in the theatric, from the theatrical release. Oh, that is so true. Mm. Maybe my worst in-theater experiences were Prometheus Ooh. and Inland Empire. Oh, don't know it. Both for the same reasons. I went with friends hoping to see a good movie that was anything but, and the disappointment from everyone else in the audience was palpable. Even if a movie is bad, I can usually make comments that get people laughing so the experience get, goes from bad to fun. When I went to see The Messenger about Joan of Arc, we lit cigarette lighters and declared to the other five people there, if we burn her now, we don't have to watch the rest of the movie. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I am sure stuff like that might make some people's exper worse experience. Yeah, but no, it wouldn't. There's no way that would make... That's great. I would love to do that. 
<laughs> well done, Vince. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Mike? What is your worst in theater experience with a movie? Oh boy, there's a list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm going to say this unironically, believe it or not, but Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS. Dear <laughs> God, what a horrible film that was. Okay. Um, now the D the first D and D movie, um, which I think mm-hmm. was is that the one with the Rod of Red Dragons? I can't remember. Yeah, with, yeah, Jeremy Irons. So we went to see it opening night like idiots because that's what we do <laughs> or did back then. And the theater we were in came close to, if not, did sell out. And we're waiting for the film to start. Waiting for the film to start, and finally, a an usher comes in and says, "Hey, we can't get the film going in here. We're going to show it in another theater." But it's not as big as this one, so you're not <laughs> everyone's going to get a seat. Oh, so we had to run to the other theater. We got seats, and then we had to watch the movie. So whatever. Oh, boy. The Coppola Dracula film and a rerun of the Goldfinger film. Both times I got to see those without air conditioning, and they were summer Ugh. films. In uh, Goldfinger's case, I had a little bit of heat stroke. Wee. That would do it. I saw Something Wicked This Way comes in a theater I was not prepared for. This was down in D.C. And down in D.C., in some theaters anyway, people are expected to speak back to the film. So when things were happening, there were people saying things out loud like, why is that man behind the door? Why? No, don't go in there. Don't go in there. (laughs) And I was like, why aren't people shutting up? What's with this? And I was actually with Nick Hoffman at the time. And he had to be like, no, 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 it's okay. That's that's this neighborhood that's what they like to do it's like okay and then lastly gladiator and this actually harkens to something somebody else said i think it was kelly the only seats were the far left of the front row to this day i have no idea what happened on the right side of the screen because i literally (laughs) couldn't see it I, I hear it's a good movie. I'd say at least half of it is. Everything on the left side of the screen was okay. <laughs> but the right side, no idea. Um, but how about you, Max? What's what's your worst movie-going experience? Yeah, I guess I got a couple. Um, one that was started out bad but ended up fun was also the D&D movie. I went with our friend Chuck. Oh. And we were the only people in the theater, we thought. Uh-huh. That was it. There was nobody there. So, of course, we begin supplying additional dialogue. <laughs> Uh-oh. About halfway through the movie, I happened to look behind me, and there were two other people in the movie uh, theater sitting there. I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean... And the guy's just like, no, man, keep going. It's it's <laughs> At least it's better than what's up there. <laughs> That's a dream come true. That's what that, that is. That really was. <laughs> yeah. But the, the actual worst one was also sitting in the front row of a theater, which I don't like in general. This was for David Cronenberg's The Fly. (laughs) Yeah, so you get to see Brundlefly spewing (laughs) 80 feet tall, six inches from your nose. I saw this with a whole group of people, one of whom, by the way, was Seth, who commented about the room. And I still remember Seth always had the best attitude. He loved horror movies. He was utterly unfazed by them. And I remember we were all hunching back in our chairs, trying to burrow through the back of the seat during the most horrible scenes, which I will not describe. And he's got his hands on his knees. He's leaning forward, this look of utter delight on his face. (laughs) He was having such a good time. I really envied that. It was miserable for me. Wow. Yeah, Max loves him some horror films. Notice Uh, how many horror films we've had in this show? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, along the area of zero, unless you count the room. And especially Um, if they have zombies, he loves zombies. There are, you know, it's funny, there are a couple of zombie movies I actually enjoy. 
Yeah, that one where it's a a teen rom-com zombie thing. Yep, warm bodies. And Mm. uh, Shaun of the Dead is fun. Mm. But anyway, we should probably get to... Well, we should thank all our answers. Oh, of course we should. But I'm not going to because I'm a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch Mike movies. Hmm. Those were great answers. (laughs) I, I, the only thing that kind of disappoints me is I kind of wish Regan McStravick had given us an example or two. I would just be really curious what movies of his he, he wishes his name weren't on. Well, I, that, I know it's kind of schadenfreude. Yeah. But, yeah, well, Regan, maybe you can write to us or something and just let us know. We won't tell. <laughs> well, and we don't give prizes, but um, I think it's it's Adam. <laughs> Someone died. Scott, yeah, dying in the theater. I, I really think, yeah, you get a no prize and yeah. a Mary Mar- Marvel marching whatever prize. Sure. But thank you. Those were great answers, and we want more, more great answers because we are absolutely insatiable for them. Pad the show, pad and, the show, pad, pad, pad the show. Pad the show. <laughs> and Nick, inspired maybe a teeny bit by this week's movie, hmm. what's your favorite film adaptation of a comic book? Hmm. It doesn't have to be a superhero comic book, any comic book. And you know, hmm. we did Ghost World, there are sure. a lot of them. What's your favorite? And now, the facts. Budget, $40 million. Really? Less, yeah. Hmm. Because, for one thing, they, they saved a lot of money on location because 90% of this movie is shot on green screen. It I'll get to was? the parts that. I know. Control your shock. I'll get to the few parts that weren't. So, $40 million, worldwide gross, $158 million. I see. So this one did pretty well. We're going to have to have a talk. (laughs) Yeah. Now, they did do a sequel nine years later. Mm. Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, without even a higher budget, $65 And it made $39 Oops. Yeah, that's uh, kind of the end of that. I bet I know why, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. This was directed by three people. Well, now wait. It was directed and then... There were special guest directors. Yes. There was the directors were Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller, and we had a special guest director. Jonathan Harris? I, uh, no, I think this is the only movie I've ever seen that in the credits. Where Quentin Tarantino mm. shows up and directs one segment, which I'll get to. Oh good. Robert Rodriguez says he doesn't consider this movie to be an adaptation so much as a translation. There, that's why there's no screenwriting in the credit. The only writing mentioned is Frank Miller as the creator of the graphic novels. Yeah, we'll get there, too. Guest director. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so hard. Special guest director. Special guest director. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino directed the scene involving Dwight and Jackie Boy in the front seat of the car before Dwight is pulled over by the cop. That's like a five-minute scene. Okay. That's it. Well, thank gods he showed up for that, because otherwise... Yeah. Yeah. Originally, Robert Rodriguez <laughs> didn't plan for Benicio Del Toro to wear makeup, but Del Toro insisted on it. Tarantino later co- commended the makeup being so good that, quote, people actually forget that's not what Benicio looks like. Oh, that may have been his intent, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Because of the way the movie was shot... Mickey Rourke, who plays Marv, and Elijah Wood, who plays Kevin, never met until after the film was released. (laughs) Yep, never met each other. That actually might be a good thing. According to an interview with Latino Review, Michael Madsen, who lands the role of Bob, Hartigan's partner, Mm. 
he got that part by walking up to Robert Rodriguez at the Kill Bill rap party and just saying, Hey, how come I wasn't cast in the movie? And Rodriguez said, okay, and gave him the only part that hadn't been cast yet, which was Bob. Uh, we'll get back to that, too. Yeah. The scene in which Marv climbs out of the manhole and staggers up against a wall was acted out in reverse and then shown for in forwards to give an otherworldly appearance to Marv. Is that why he's totally dry? <laughs> Probably. And then later he's wet. And then, yeah, anyway. Robert Rodriguez did the score for Kill Bill 2 for, the, for $1. Tarantino said he'd repay him by directing a segment of this movie for $1. Tarantino's a big proponent of film over digital. And he said that he was curious to get his ha a hands-on experience with high-definition cameras that Rodriguez loves. Mm. When asked about his experience, Tarantino just said, Mission accomplished. Wow. Well, yeah. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> well, the three stories in this movie, sort of four, uh, The Hard Goodbye, The Big Fat Kill, and That Yellow Bastard, as well as the short The Customer is Always Right. That's the sort of bookend one. Uh. There was a very brief scene taken from the story A Dame to Kill For in which Dwight thinks in a voiceover in Katie's bar how Marv would have been okay if he'd been born a couple of centuries earlier. That's actually part of the story a dame to kill for. Oh. Yes. According to Rodriguez's commentary, the scourging, whipping sequence between the yellow bastard and Nancy was originally shot very faithfully to the comic book, meaning a lot longer and a lot more graphic than what appears in the final cut or the extended version. There is an extended edition. Ugh. Rodriguez stated that the torture segment was crossing the bounds of bad taste, even <laughs> for Sin City. Those <laughs> bounds are pretty far out there already. We'll get to that. The signature white blood proved very hard to achieve on screen. Regular movie blood couldn't provide the stark look. The crew had to use fluorescent red liquid and bathe it in black light. In post-production, the liquid was turned white. Why? I don't know, because it's in the comic book. I'm sorry, graphic novel. <sighs> As I said, almost all of this movie is shot in a green scene. There are only four practical sets. Katie's bar, Shelley's apartment, Hardigan's prison cell, and the hospital in the epilogue. And it's, thank God they were. Mm. Yeah, there's a little sort of nod to Frank Miller, by Frank Miller in this book. The strategy that Dwight uses at the end to lure the gangsters into a narrow alleyway, that's basically the same strategy that King Leonidas used to trap the Persian army in the Battle of Thermopylae, which the graphic novel 300, also by Frank Miller, was based on. And the line that Dwight's internal monologue says, no escape, no surrender, no mercy, is also from three, the movie 300. Mm. Jessica Alba went to strip clubs as part of her research for her character. However, she said it didn't help because all the professional strippers were doing is trying to get tips. The nerve! <laughs> the only ones who came back for the sequel, by the way, were Rosario Dawson, Mickey Rourke, who is almost unrecognizable in it. I saw it. Jessica, Bruce Willis, Jessica Alba, Jamie King, and Powers Booth. That's Everybody else either gets replaced or their new characters. That's still a lot. Yeah. 
Although several of the actors already looked similar to their characters, some of them underwent makeup and prosthetics to more strongly resemble their Frank Miller drawn likenesses. They did? Including Bru- yeah, hard to believe, isn't it? Bruce Willis, Mickey Rourke, Benicio Del Toro, and Nick Stahl, who plays the Yellow Bastard. Mm. Just to slightly lower the creepy factor, Hartigan points out, he says, I'm old enough to be your grandfather. The character, Hartigan, is 68, and Nancy's supposed to be 19. I'm sorry, he's what? Old enough to be, what? He's supposed to be 68 in the comic. Yeah, I know, we'll get to that. In real life, Bruce Willis and Jessica Alba are 26 years apart, so it's only slightly creepy. Mm. (laughs) And of course, did you catch your all-time favorite sound effect, Mike? Thankfully, no, yes, I did. (laughs) Yeah, the Wilhelm screen when Marv <sighs> chucks the police officer out of the cop car. Yeah. Another kind of physical change is in the comic book, Marv is a seven-foot-tall giant, and Cardinal Rourke is a dwarf. He's a little person. Hmm. In the movie, Mickey Rourke, who's Marv, is actually two inches shorter than Cardinal Rourke, Rutger Hauer, hmm. who's 6'1". We'll get back to that. Those razor wire handling gloves, which do exist, but those weren't them. Those were a brand of lacrosse gloves. I thought they were hockey mittens, but... <laughs> Close. Not, or whatever they call them. And yes, uh, Frank Miller does appear in the movie. He's a cameo as a priest in the confessional who gets his head blown open. Um, yay? Can yeah. I, can I say that? Does it give too much yep, away? Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and there's that. a ton of other stuff, most I of bet. it technical, but I think that's more than enough. But tell us the stories, because it was an anthology, and I wasn't expecting that. Yep. Basin City, or Sin City, is a lonely place. I know, I walk it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where, where that came from. That's for Val. It's a dark, violent, bloody, rainy, untouched-by-sunlight-ever place where the rents are cheap, the cars are vintage, and the sex workers are astonishingly attractive and well-dressed. And some of them are ninjas, apparently. Sure. In this adaptation of Frank Miller's disturbingly popular graphic novel series from the 90s, we get three, sort of four, separate but intertwining stories of murder, sex, corruption, murder, violence, murder, and murder with a side order of murder. (laughs) We follow unstoppable violence machine Marv as he struggles to avenge the death of Goldie, a sex worker who was nice to him once. He kills his way along the narrative chain, absorbing more punishment than humanly possible, fighting cops, wolves, and a lethal Frodo Baggins to get to his (laughs) bloody vision of justice. Then there's Dwight trying to protect a waitress at the local strip club, caught up in a deadly power struggle between Michael Clark Duncan, Benicio Del Toro's severed head, and the beautiful Ahsoka Tano, who took a break from her Jedi training to run a prostitution organization. (laughs) Finally, well, really firstly, kind of, there's Bruce Hartigan. I mean, John Willis. I mean, an honest cop from a, in a corrupt city who gives up everything to protect a sweet little girl who grows up to be a dancer at the local strip club. Huh, I'm sensing a pattern here. <laughs> also, we get a few moments of Josh Hartnett as a cold-bloodedly adorable hitman. Everything is in black and white except for the parts that aren't. And the moral of the story is pretty obvious. No sane person should live in Basin City. Mm. The film. Yeah, that's it. It's an anthology. Yeah. 
Technically um, standalone stories that sort of cross paths here and there. Sure. <laughs> By the way, I discovered something. We, I'm sure our listeners have, and you have heard of the Bechdel test. Sure. The, gee, the does this pass? Oh, God. Uh, Wait. Does it? it? Um, there might be a point where Gail is talking to some of the... No, they don't go on long enough. Okay. The Bechdel <laughs> test is... Oh, I see. They pass because the women don't actually speak together for more than 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the Bechdel test. It has to be two female characters. They have to have names. They have to talk for at least 30 seconds, and what they talk about can't be a man. <laughs> so if they don't, they don't get to talk for 30 seconds, they pass. Yeah. <laughs> they, no, they, yeah, they fail. And they, there is also, uh, this was more tongue-in-cheek, they came out with the Frank Miller test. Oh, dear. Which is, if the proportion of female sex workers to neutrally presented women <laughs> is above one-to-one, the author fails the test. <laughs> I think the author fails the test hard oh, in this boy. one. Yeah. Yeah, except for Lucille, I think, pretty, and maybe Shelley. Pretty much all the other female characters uh, are either hookers or strippers. They're sex workers. Well, and Lucille, of course, we have to see both in her underwear and naked. And it's in the comic book. I don't care because one of the most misogynistic lines is in reference to her. And the line is, she's a dyke, but God's, God knows why. Yeah. She could have any man she wants. Talk yeah. about tone deaf. Holy crap, yeah. that line is so problematic. I literally can't parse it. Yeah. Well, Frank Miller has issues. Oh, dear God. Well, we'll get back to Frank Miller, because yeah. I've actually had dinner with him. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, do, do you remember when you saw this first? Did you see it in the theater? I did. I saw it when it came out. I saw it in 2005. Oh. Yeah. And then you saw it again. Did you see it in I between? Did. I did. I've seen it a couple of times on cable. Oh. Hmm. Or streaming, for those of you who are under 30. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a cable involved. Okay. Somewhere. I hadn't what, seen what, it. Yeah. No, this you've is the never first, seen this at all. No, had you read the books? Oh yes, I I read yeah. the books. As I said, yeah, I so did I. But we have this cast. It's very we have a very large cast. <laughs> uh, you, you I gotta say, okay, Mickey Rourke. Uh, Mickey Rourke had not been in movies for quite a while. He was going to be the golden boy. You know, he was young. He was handsome. Honest. He was handsome. <laughs> He was. <laughs> then he decided he wanted to be a boxer, and that ended that. He basically got his face beaten into hamburger. Mm. He was apparently a good boxer, but you know, there's a reason you don't see a lot of boxers in Abercrombie and Fitch catalogs. Mm. And I thought, despite the fact that Marv is supposed to be much more, much bigger, I think he does a really good job as Marv. And admittedly, there are a couple of scenes where the chin prosthesis is painfully obvious. This was not meant to be watched in 4K. I think physically he really pulls it off. Okay. I you don't, don't, huh? No, I don't think... There's no character there. There's no depth at all. And I'm, Well, I'm going to start off right at the top. There's no depth in any of the characters here. We know almost nothing about anybody. And yeah, Everybody is pretty much a cliche or a stereotype. Well, and I want to say that they're even the same cliche. Is Marv really that much different than Hardigan, except that Hardigan's a cop? No. Are any of them different than Dwight? No. Are they the nope. same guy? Basically, they are. They're, and the amount of punishment they take is 
impossible. I mean, all I kept thinking is the matter Marv gets, the stronger <laughs> Marv gets. Hat go to sleep. Guy, he is shot multiple times, including once in the head. Yeah, and he's just like, Ugh, ow. Well, he gets hit by a moving car twice, and it's in, actually in kind of succession. funny. It's actually it is. There's something kind of comic-y about it. This this really comes across as a comic book, which is what it is. Well, it isn't though. This is a movie. And for yeah. want of a better term, even when it's violent, the action is comic booky. I don't know yeah. another better way of, of and No, it is. It's, it's the cartoonish almost. Yeah, and the slavish adaptation is almost ignoring the ability of film, I think, but we'll come back to it. <laughs> we're giving it away again. So, I, does Mickey? I, I it, liked him. I think he, I think he pulls the cat. It's true. There's not much there, but I think he gives him real presence, and he's kind of and he's oddly endearing in some in some ways. He barely okay. Um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got uh, Clive Owen. Stamping on his English accent with both feet. <laughs> He's fine. I mean, He's, again, yeah, he doesn't do much. No. This, by the way, there are some incredibly noir moments with him. <laughs> Never mind that every character in every, excuse me, every male character yeah. gets an inner monologue noir narration. Yeah, that's not problematic at all. <laughs> I, I mean, he the bit where he like s slaps Gale and then she kisses him. That's like one of the most toxic but very common tropes in film noir. It's like, oh, you awful man. <laughs> you Comes up a lot. You two-timing four-flusher. <laughs> oh, Frank. Oh, Frank. oh yeah. Margaret. <laughs> okay, not just in noir, but also in MASH. Um, and Bruce Willis is... Bruce Willis. Uh, I thought his scar did a very nice job of acting. Well, and I'm sitting there, I don't know about you, but I just sat there staring at it. Because not only yeah. does it not really look scarish, I'm like, what would have caused that? Like, I, yeah. I don't. Is he's got a big X on his face. All I can think is he really wanted to join Professor Xavier's School for Gifted <laughs> Youngsters and took it a little far. He's he's Bruce Willis in this. I and he's fine. Bruce Willis is a good choice sure. for the hard-boiled cop. I think. But sixty-eight. <laughs> yes, if he's sixty-eight, come on. Well, because at the beginning they, he says he's just close to sixty, so I figured he's fifty-eight or fifty-nine, and then he's in jail for eight years. So yeah. I guess there's an extra couple of years in there for good behavior. But sixty-eight? <laughs> no. Yeah. no, 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 no. Who's next? Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, then it's Rosario Dawson as Gail. Sure. Um, she looks great in a corset. <laughs> um, I mean, I and I don't blame any of these people. I honestly no, think... No, it's not their fault. It's the writing. Sorry, yes. Frank. Because, yeah, we'll get to yeah. Frank. But uh, she's yeah. fine. She tries. I gotta say, she's really attempting to put to give Gail some kind of personality, but she's fighting such an uphill battle. Yeah. And also, she, a minor character, uh, Becky, played by Alexis Blydell, who does the worst, most unconvincing turn as a hooker. It's like, oh, honey, you should be selling Girl Scout cookies. Come on. I, I, yeah, sure. 
Uh, I want to oh. really quickly going back to uh, Rosario Dawson. I got to say, mm. she actually in some ways has more presence here than she does in Ahsoka, but we're not covering yes. Ahsoka, so she also shows more emotional range. Oh, she there. shows a lot of more of everything, but mm. yeah, yeah. Anyway, go. Jessica Alba as uh, Nancy. She's there. The character is so problematic. The idea that she was mm. an 11-year-old girl, the fact that there's an actual child in this film is disturbing enough. Uh, yes, I yeah. know that it's supposed to be disturbing, but my just thought was, no, there's an actor who's 11 or whatever that's in this, in this I don't know, studio, whatever it is, that upset me but then she comes back she becomes 19 because of course we want to make sure everything's legal everything's legal yeah. and she's coming on to what i now know is a 68 year old that's yeah. just even worse i just oh my god and yeah creepy I, i'm guessing she's very attractive in this that's fine she is she's very pretty but just yuck but, look jessica alba is a perfectly serviceable actor. She's wow. She's not great, and I'm glad she has found great success outside of acting. I'm glad. I'm glad she has. She's a billionaire. I think at this point she's a businesswoman. Good for her, and that's great. But in this and in most of the stuff, she just doesn't have a lot of range. No, who's yeah. next on the hit parade? Be Benicio del Toro. It took me forever to say, is that him? No. Yeah. Finally, there's a shot where we're looking up from like below his chin and stuff, and it's like, oh, yeah. it is him. I, yep. like, I don't know if that's because he didn't Honestly, want to Honestly, I know. think he does a good job. I think he's really good at being an absolutely horrible character. Even though he's not really a character, he's sort of he's just an awful plot device. You know when I liked him? When he's the when head. He's dead. <laughs> yes. When he the sequence when Dwight is driving the bodies to dump them in a the not La Brea tar pits. Careful, <laughs> um, some parts float. Yeah, yeah. by the way, that is the most watery tar <laughs> I've ever seen in my life, and it comes off really easily. Things they would float. have been covered in black for weeks. But yeah. anyway, when they're in the car and Dwight is, in effect, hallucinating a conversation with him, that's one of the most fun parts of the movie. I will agree to that. It also has some real resonance for me with a movie called... Well, actually, it's called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is the Hunter Thompson, because Benicio Del Toro plays Hunter Thompson's lawyer, oh. and where they're often driving together and having these bizarre conversations, and it reminded me a lot of that. But I wasn't a dead lawyer. No, he oh, was alive, shoot. just on, on many, many, many drugs. I see. So, yeah, Benicio Del Toro is a lot of fun. And then there's, of course, let's see, the collection of Irish stereotypes. <sighs> Hello, we're all terrorists, and we like to blow things up and shoot people. I oh, oh, we like to drink too, lots and lots of drinking. Yeah, okay. Michael Malley, Michael Malley. God, I'm sure they're there. Whatever. Who's next? Yeah, we got a lot of people. Devin Ioki as Miho. Does she talk? No, nope. She does not. She doesn't talk in the comics. She doesn't talk in the movie. But she Unfortunately, that is really where Devin, I Devin Aoki does the best. She's good at looking cool okay, and having presence for such a tiny little woman, but she's not really that good an actor, so okay. good choice. Um, I don't know. The Josh Hartnett's on for three minutes. Uh, with a character we never have know anything about. Like, nope, I, don't, no, I don't understand. We don't even know his name. We don't know why. He's apparently an assassin. We see him. We see him kill one person, and the implication he's about to kill somebody else at well, the end. And they're both women, so that's great. Yeah. Um, I wanted, he, if he, you weren't going to mention him, I want to throw in, uh, actually, I want to throw Michael Madsen under the bus. He was terrible. Yeah. He really is just 
not even phoning it in. I think he was scribbling it on a napkin and shoving it under a door in. I mean, I know that the writing is not good and the directing was pre-planned like a comic, but he, like, to me, stood out as being just awful. Like, I have a note mm-hmm. just says, whoever plays Bob is kind of terrible, and I had to look it up, and it's like, oh... So and then just what about Nick Stahl as the as Rourke Jr. the Yellow Bastard? I mean, what? A, so they don't even explain. I guess it's supposed to be a liver condition or whatever that turns you. We like, have no idea. I, who cares? Uh, yeah. Whatever. I mean, talk about comic book villains. He was just yeah. He yeah. is. He's just. He's just. Hello. I'm completely Ill- irredeemably evil and awful. Well, and poor Elijah. How are you? Elijah Wood doesn't get anything to say. However. I really appreciate the image of Elijah Wood kicking the crap out of Mickey Rourke. Yeah, that's funny as hell. When you realize that poor Elijah, would, his leg would snap off if he tried to kick him. However, it makes watching Lord of the Rings difficult because if he can do that, then Boromir never had a chance. Yeah, seriously. Why didn't you do that to Boromir there, Frodo? Yeah. I, I, I think I actually really enjoy his performance. He doesn't. He also has no dialogue. He doesn't get to say a word, but he's immensely creepy and menacing. Yeah. And uh, who thought? Who knew Elijah Wood could do that? I didn't. Yeah. But uh, boy, we, we got We don't have a lot of time to talk about. Yeah, the sorry. This is and a gigantic. Butcher Howard. Oh yes. The only, for me, good performance in the entire film. Rutger Howard is there for what? 45 seconds. And he's really good. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Like tears in the rain. Um, no, he's, he, I want to say he's, he's equal to that or better, although it's a much shorter uh, role, which is too bad. Because, yeah, he does great. He waltzes in, somehow knows what to do with this script, and does it. So, good for him. Yeah. I hope it paid for a villa in Tuscany. Me too. But yeah, but so we have this film. Uh, I don't know about do. you. I thought Sin City was Las Vegas. <laughs> well, that is one of its nicknames. Yeah. So why is it not Las Vegas? Uh, I expect you to know. To draw. <laughs> no, you want, okay. Now Miller wanted it to be a fictionalized city. I mean, there is a point when Marv's running across the rooftops. You see the Chrysler Building. I know. I don't mean. I don't mean a building that looks like the no. Chrysler Building. I mean the Chrysler Building. Well, and I, my note was I thought Sin City was Las Vegas, and at that point I thought it was New York because. Yeah. Well, to be fair. No, it's Frank is a. I believe he is a born New Yorker and has yeah. been centered around New York ever since. Um, I did have dinner with the man once, and he was. It was when this book came out. Like they, we had him for a signing at the store, and he was really nice. Like the guy talked to me, like I was an equal the whole time we're at dinner, and I'm like, he would say, "Think, oh, you draw, you use a, uh, you brush and ink. What brush do you use?" And my thought was, why the hell do you care? Because you're Frank, freaking Miller. You're the reason I started reading comics the first comic i ever read modern comic was daredevil 191 and i thought it was fantastic i was blown away i never seen anything like that in a superhero comic and frank miller is a remarkable writer he really is i mean the dark knight returns changed the character of batman forever everyone else every single i will say and i'll just say this for the last 40 years every single portrayal of batman in any medium, has been influenced by The Dark Knight Returns. Yes. That being said, have yeah, you gone back and reread it? <laughs> yes, and it's also problematic. By the way, I also noticed he plagiarizes from himself an awful lot. <sighs> yes. Oh, he, stupid old man, in, stupid old man. Oh, my God. Yeah. There, the, 
uh, Jlub and Klump, or whatever Klump, they're called. Yep. By the way, Klump, who does not get any lines, is played by Nick Offerman, the brilliant comic actor. Klump was so played sure, by Rick gonna, Gomez. Yeah, don't know who he is. Oh, I said Klump, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, whichever Schlump, one. Or Schlump. Schlub. Nick uh, Nick Offerman's the one who doesn't get any lines because if you're going to have Nick Offerman in, in a movie, you sure don't want him to say anything. Mm. But yeah, no. After I, people, I don't want to get too much into this, but people say after around nine eleven, Frank's brain basically melted. Yeah, and some of that was booze. Some of that was just he has a lot of issues. You can see he has a lot. I, I'm telling you the Frank Miller test, where every woman in is pretty much a sex worker. That's it's not entirely wrong. Yeah, and it's especially on view here. Um, it's just, this movie is so problematic in so many ways, but the way it treats women is just unforgivable, I think, honestly. There's, there's not... It's very uncomfortable. The women aren't characters. They're plot devices. They're literally objectified in a lot of cases. Mm -mm. Yeah. And this, I, I, had, I had a question, but I think you're going to sort of answer it is this actually noir or is it just wearing noir's makeup I, I think it has a lot of noir elements but i'm not i don't think it is noir well and what it's simply too violent and too over the top noir whatever else you want to say has a certain level of subtlety to it i had the same note even when it's brutal it's often yeah. subtle or well done and this, there is no subtlety in this movie at all. None. No, and especially the dialogue. It's it's like taking Chandler and literally boiling it for a half an hour. And there's lines in here. Hard boiling it. Oh, you're so fired. <laughs> <laughs> there's points where they have narration. And the problem is, is that they're narrating what we're watching. And it's actually the opening of the, the whole movie. There is a line, she shivered like the last leaf on a tree. Except she's not shivering. She looks yeah. a little cold, but she's not even shivering. So why are you doing this? Why, uh, why don't they match, or why do you even have that narration? This is actually a problem that goes back to Golden Age comics. The original Golden Age superhero comics would have a line, and then they'd show the character doing the line, and it wasn't until much later that they broke away from that. And now we get to go back to that. So there's a weird... We're, you know, we're sort of referencing old noir films, and we're using styles of old comic books, but we're not doing either i think particularly well without giving anything <laughs> well it's almost time uh, why is the blood white i don't know because sometimes the blood's red and i don't i couldn't figure out the white blood that's just like the cinematography in this is very strange they really went all in trying to go we're going to make this look like the comic book there are shots that are literally right out of the comic book panels and they want you to know it yeah they linger on them. They're like, huh? Huh? Remember this? Well, and I have to say, in terms of sheer technical skill, mm -hmm. they pull it off. It looks just like the comic book. I'm not sure that's a good thing. This isn't a comic book. As you said, this is a movie. It's not supposed to look like a comic book. It's supposed to work in three dimensions. It's supposed to have motion. Yeah. And, well, emotion, and that's not electronic motion. That's, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Like E-Ragon. Uh, E-Motion, for all your motion needs. <laughs> I don't, I guess I don't understand the idea of translating something from one medium to another and not taking advantage of that medium's strengths. And that's of what I... medium, yeah. And I, so, I did go to film school briefly. Well, two and a half years. And I remember at one point we were using our teacher in a film we were making and we needed him to do something and it's like, hey, how about reading a comic book? I 
big surprise, happened to have one with me since I worked at a comic store. And he was going through it going, wow, this is really just set up like storyboards for a movie. So a lot of the language is similar, but movies have that motion thing, like Max said, and the ability to change more than angles more than a comic can and link I I don't know. I just Yeah, the angles in the the film uses are very comic book, not movie. Well, and I think that in an in an artistic way, you could have done that stark black and white and done something with it, but you shouldn't have just been so slavish to the material. Cause while it's visually striking, to me it also just reminds you how shallow everything is. Yeah. Right? Like you said, it's all green screen. Yeah. So, oh, the bar, which is one of the few sets that actually is real, actually is one of the few places where you see details of what's around you. Otherwise, it's just shadow. It's also one of the only places, and I still don't know why this is, where for about a minute everything is in color. It's very muted. But instead of, that's the whole thing. This is all done in, mostly done in black and white, except for these little points, like somebody's eyes will be a certain color, mm-hmm. or their coat, or blood and for a moment in katie's everything is in color and then it fades and i don't know exactly why that was what that was supposed to be telling us i don't either and i think if you're going to have red as blood be one of the colors that stands out not doing it every time just seems like a very i actually honestly thought they ran out of money or there was a mistake or something but it's like at a certain point it is literally coming out like paint like you can tell it's not see-through it's like white paint and it's just like yeah. You're doing this brutal violence, and now you're really telling us it's not real. So I don't really understand. But You notice the little digs at other comic books in this movie, too? No. Shelly the waitress at one point, when Jackie Boy is breaking in, says, well, there a guy here? says, yeah, Superman. He flew away because he's scared of you. Oh. And there is a moment in the bar when Hardigan comes in, and Marv is sitting there ogling Nancy, and the guy sitting next to him, is, in fact, supposed to look like Wolverine. I looked that up. Oh, well, then, yeah, yeah. it went over my head, because whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and there's weird... Li- very comic booky. There's weird little things, like, you know, when I said um, Marv has literally just jumped into the bay, swum underwater through a sewer pipe, and comes up through the manhole, and he's totally dry. I didn't understand that. Uh, the, quote, yellow bastard, and again, this is a, the character is literally yellow. I think he's supposed to have some sort of liver problem. Um, I don't yeah. want to know, why is his car right-hand drive? Yeah, I was curious about that too. <laughs> it's so he can shoot, I guess. My, but my first thought was always oh, shooting out the right window. Someone must, must be drive. Nope, no one else is in the nope. car. Okay. Yeah, just I don't know. It's from Europe. I don't know. I'm sure it was just like that in the comic book, and that's yeah, the way probably. Frank drew it. But yeah, apparently, by the way, Bruce Willis is left-handed, but he does everything in the movie right-handed because that's how it is in the comic book. Oh well, that's fine. Yeah. Maybe he plays piano Why? with a slow right hand. <laughs> That's a deeper. It uh, it's a pointless detail. Why would he just? It's in the comic book. Is not a good enough reason. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. I'm sorry. That's one of the. There is a terrible comic adaptation of Josie and the Pussycats, <laughs> as opposed to the good one. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there could be. But one of the characters in it is Alexandra, the bad guy. And there is a scene where they're on a plane, they're going off someplace, and one of them, she's being her usual insulting self, and one of the people looks at her and just says, why are you even here? And she just looks up and goes, oh, because I'm in the comic book, and looks back at whatever she's reading. <laughs> like, okay, that was pretty, f- that's the only moment in the movie that's actually kind of entertaining. 
except for the boy band, but that's yeah. something else. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're at that point. Surprisingly yeah. enough, uh, we sh- we should get to it so people will know what we thought of Sin City. Yeah. The finish. So Max, you. <laughs> You said you've seen this a number of times since I have. Came. Why? Because it's a popcorn movie. It's a it's mindless. If I want to just turn my brain off and go, I want to see things blow up and get shot. And I got to tell you, I like the sequence with Marv. I think Marv is fun. I think Mickey Rourke does a really good job. And you're reminded why he he has had all the accolades he's had. As a movie, this thing is just a, a, a nightmare. It's, it's a mess. It's really, it's trying so hard to be a comic book. And you keep going, why are you trying to be a comic book? You're not a comic book. See, no pages, no ads for Charles Atlas on the back cover, nothing. <laughs> Don't kick sand in my face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, when, I, when I saw it, when it came out, I thought it was interesting because... I'd never seen anything like it. It was the, the best kind of visual adaptation of a comic book I'd ever seen. Mm. Looking back at it now, I'm like, that's not enough. As we've seen, it's not enough to look like a comic book. It's not enough to have, uh, have the look and feel. You have to have story and character and emotion and things you actually give a crap about. Eh. What about you? Uh, you've, this is the first time you saw it. Yeah. You'd read the books, but I, it's the first time you've seen the movie. I read the books. I sold the books. I, I had dinner with the author artist. You ate the books. I Nearly. And, you know, this is when Frank left Marvel. He wanted to go off on his own and do something that he owned, and he went to a company called Dark Horse, and they're like, heck yeah, we'll take you. Creator own? <laughs> sure, no problem. And I'm sure Frank did very well with them. And I will say, Frank had been bringing noir aspects to a character called daredevil before he even got to batman and those elements really worked well with those characters both of whom supposedly with batman were used to seeing the worst dregs of society in the underbelly and all that stuff and he quite honestly upped the writing at the time because the writing had been done by people like stan lee who didn't know anything about the streets yeah. <laughs> or black people. Um, <laughs> so it was sweet Christmas. You know, <laughs> I loved it when he actually said it in the TV show, and I was yep. like, "Wow, you have a lot of guts." But the problem is that a lot of things about noir don't age well, as we've seen, and that is especially treatment of women, just in general the attitudes towards some things. But sometimes we can look at them as a classic form of whatever it is, like Sunset Boulevard or other films we've watched, and we can appreciate it because it was done so well. This, I don't think, was done well. And Well, let me rephrase that. This was done slavishly, and in that respect, I think Rodriguez did a very good job. He wanted to make a movie that looked like the comic, and boy, howdy, did he. Yeah. But he didn't take advantage of anything about being a filmmaker. And I've seen other of Rodriguez's films, and I've really liked them. He does some really good stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, Desperado is terrific. Love Desperado. El Mariachi. Yeah. But I just... Uh, Spy Kids? Uh, Spy Kids? <laughs> hey, some of those are fun. He apparently made them for his kids. And you know what? That's an yeah. awesome reason to make a kid's. Good for you. Absolutely. I've seen it with children, and the kids I've seen them with love them. Which is right. But I don't... There's nothing... There's. It's all style. And Frank... 
When we met, you were a really nice guy. I had a great time. You treated me really well. But I got to say, the writing in here, it feels like Chandler's leftovers, like stuff he threw in the basket. It was so heavy. It's like every line has to have a metaphor, and it has to be hard-boiled. It's too black and white. There's no gray in here at all. And... I kind of wonder if this isn't something that relates. This is a very comic book thing, but there was a the, one of the guys who actually created the look of Spider-Man. Not Ditko. Ditko. Okay. Steve Ditko was did a character called Mr. A who was totally black and white. You're evil or you're good. There's no in-between. And I can't help but wonder if Frank was influenced by him in doing stuff like mm. this. But for my money... It just does not work, and it's just. Mm-hmm. I actually thought it was. It. I was like, when is this going to end? I actually at one point had to pause, and I'm like, oh my god, there's still 35 minutes to this. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's only a little over two hours, but honestly, it does kind of feel longer. Yeah, but uh, hey, how about yeah. that poll question? <laughs> how about it? Speaking of comic book adaptations, what's your favorite comic book adaptation into a movie? It doesn't have to be a superhero movie. This technically isn't one, although, come on, with the amount of punishment they absorb. Yeah. Do you want it to be such that it's not a comic book movie, meaning like it's not a Superman movie? It has to be a specific comic book? Yeah, a specific comic book. Or graphic novel. Or graphic novel. <laughs> okay. Or sequential art, whatever the hell Scott McCloud calls it. That's sequential art. Yeah. And it was... But you realizing. can tell us. You can tell us one of those things, however you like. You can give us your answer many, many ways, as many ways as there are stars on the pavement. Um, what? Huh? <laughs> that there aren't that many ways, really. You can email <laughs> us at us at maxmikemovies.com, you can, which is our favorite way. Won't you email us? And uh, you can go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment, as only the bravest among you do. And you can find us on Facebook. Which, uh, Facebook. Gr- Just say Facebook. Never! Gods. The, the book of faces where under Max Mike Movies, which is the only social media site left. <laughs> don't, 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 don't try to verify that. And you can find us on the podcast app of your choice, or our choice, or Frank Miller's choice if you're really in trouble. But we aren't done. We're barely halfway through our series, mm-hmm. which means there must be another movie next week. I've worked this out with my incredible dedu- deducing powers. <sighs> deduce, you say? You couldn't deduce three after two. <laughs> yes, I could. <laughs> nice pause. <laughs> well, I had to get. I had to check my fingers. So, what are we watching next week? Please, not something with the word "city" in it. Well, <laughs> oh no, Luthi. <laughs> what you should say? So this week we had a sin. City, and it was a pretty dark movie, even if it wasn't, I don't know, all really that good an example of noir. And it was white in some parts and black in others, but we're gonna go a little bit darker, I think. And uh, this one is a questionable entry, I think. It was suggested by one of our listeners, it was, I think, also on our list, but it was suggested, I believe it was uh, Matt Reisman who wrote in and suggested this as a, one of his possible favorite noir film so we're going to take a trip to dark city which sounds like a really happy place going to dark city gonna have some fun that doesn't work three girls for every boy or whatever it was <laughs> two actually but sure three girls for every two no. boys 
What a weird weird choice. But anyway. Doesn't scan either. Really, next week, walk the dark city with us. Street. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Now we're recording. My angina. You can't say that word in the air. You know what that means? My (laughs) angina. It's near my area. (laughs) I have urges in my area. Stop having urges and get ready to do the count out. (laughs) Okay.